Chapter 19, Part 2 of A Diary from Dixie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Laurie Ann Walden. A Diary from Dixie by Mary Chestnut. Chapter 19, Lincolnton, North Carolina, Part 2. February 29th. Trying to brave it out. They have plenty, yet let our men freeze and starve in their prisons. Would you be willing to be as wicked as they are? A thousand times no. But we must feed our army first, if we can do so much as that. Our captives need not starve if Lincoln would consent to exchange prisoners. But men are nothing to the United States, things to throw away. If they send our men back, they strengthen our army. And so, again, their policy is to keep everybody and everything here in order to help starve us out. That, too, is what Sherman's destruction means, to starve us out. Young Brevard asked me to play accompaniments for him. The guitar is my instrument, or was, so I sang and played to my own great delight. It was a distraction. Then I made eggnog for the soldier boys below, and came home. Have spent a very pleasant evening. Begone, dull care. You and I never agree. Ellen and I are shut up here. It is rain, rain, everlasting rain. As our money is worthless, are we not to starve? Heavens, how grateful I was today when Mrs. McLean sent me a piece of chicken. I think the emptiness of my larder has leaked out. Today Mrs. Monroe sent me hot cakes and eggs for my breakfast. March 5th. Is the sea drying up? Is it going up into mist and coming down on us in a water spout? The rain, it raineth every day. The weather typifies our tearful despair on a large scale. It is also Lent now, a quite convenient custom, for we, in truth, have nothing to eat. So we fast and pray, and go dragging to church like drowned rats to be preached at. My letter from my husband was so, well, what in a woman you would call heartbroken, that I began to get ready for a run up to Charlotte. My hat was on my head, my traveling bag in my hand, and Ellen was saying, "'Which umbrella, ma'am?' "'Stop, Ellen,' said I. "'Someone is speaking out there.' A tap came at the door, and Miss McLean threw the door wide open as she said in a triumphant voice, "'Permit me to announce General Chestnut.' As she went off, she sang out, "'Oh, does not a meeting like this make amends?' We went after luncheon to see Mrs. Monroe. My husband wanted to thank her for all her kindness to me. I was awfully proud of him. I used to think that everybody had the air and manners of a gentleman. I know now that these accomplishments are things to thank God for. Father O'Connell came in, fresh from Columbia, and with news at last. Sherman's men had burned the convent. Mrs. Monroe had pinned her faith to Sherman because he was a Roman Catholic. But Father O'Connell was there and saw it. The nuns and girls marched to the old Hampton house, Mrs. Preston's now, and so saved it. They walked between files of soldiers. Men were rolling tar barrels and lighting torches to fling on the house when the nuns came. Columbia is but dust and ashes, burned to the ground. Men, women, and children have been left there homeless, houseless, and without one particle of food reduced to picking up corn that was left by Sherman's horses on picket grounds and parching it to stay their hunger. How kind my friends were on this, my fate day. Mrs. Rutledge sent me a plate of biscuit. Mrs. Monroe, nearly enough food supplies for an entire dinner. Mrs. McLean, a cake for dessert. 
Ellen cooked and served up the material happily at hand very nicely indeed. There never was a more successful dinner. My heart was too full to eat, but I was quiet and calm. At least I spared my husband the trial of a broken voice and tears. As he stood at the window, with his back to the room, he said, "'Where are they now, my old blind father and my sister?' Day and night I see her leading him out from under his own roof-tree. That picture pursues me persistently. But come, let us talk of pleasanter things. To which I answered, Where will you find them? He took off his heavy cavalry boots, and Ellen carried them away to wash the mud off and dry them. She brought them back just as Miss Middleton walked in. In his agony, while struggling with those huge boots and trying to get them on, he spoke to her volubly in French. She turned away from him instantly, as she saw his shoeless plight, and said to me, I had not heard of your happiness. I did not know the general was here. Not until next day did we have time to remember and laugh at that outbreak of French. Miss Middleton answered him in the same language. He told her how charmed he was with my surroundings, and that he would go away with a much lighter heart since he had seen the kind people with whom he would leave me. I asked my husband what that correspondence between Sherman and Hampton meant, this while I was preparing something for our dinner. His back was still turned as he gazed out of the window. He spoke in the low and steady monotone that characterized our conversation the whole day, and yet there was something in his voice that thrilled me as he said, The second day after our march from Columbia we passed the M's. He was a bonded man and not at home. His wife said at first that she could not find forage for our horses, but afterwards she succeeded in procuring some. I noticed a very handsome girl who stood beside her as she spoke, and I suggested to her mother the propriety of sending her out of the track of both armies. Things were no longer as heretofore. There was so much straggling, so many camp followers, with no discipline on the outskirts of the army. The girl answered quickly, I wish to stay with my mother. That very night a party of Wheeler's men came to our camp, and such a tale they told of what had been done at the place, of horror and destruction the mother left raving. The outrage had been committed before her very face, she having been secured first. After this crime the fiends moved on. There were only seven of them. They had been gone but a short time when Wheeler's men went in pursuit at full speed and overtook them, cut their throats, and wrote upon their breasts, these were the seven. But the girl? Oh, she was dead. Are his critics as violent as ever against the President? Asked I, when recovered from pity and horror. Sometimes I think I'm the only friend he has in the world. At these dinners, which they give us everywhere, I spoil the sport, for I will not sit still and hear Jeff Davis abused for things he is no more responsible for than any man at that table. Once I lost my temper and told them it sounded like errant nonsense to me, and that Jeff Davis was a gentleman and a patriot, with more brains than the assembled company. "'You lost your temper, truly,' said I. And I did not know it. I thought I was as cool as I am now. In Washington, when we left, Jeff Davis ranked second to none in intellect, and maybe first from the South, and Mrs. Davis was the friend of Mrs. Emory, Mrs. Joe Johnston, and Mrs. Montgomery Blair and others of that circle. Now they rave that he is nobody, and never was. "'And she?' I asked. "'Oh, you would think to hear them that he found her yesterday in a Mississippi swamp.' 
Well, in the French Revolution it was worse. When a man failed, he was guillotined. Mirabeau did not die a day too soon. Even Mirabeau. He is gone. With despair in my heart, I left that railroad station. Alan Green walked home with me. I met his wife and his four ragged little boys a day or so ago. She is the neatest, the primmest, the softest of women. Her voice is like the gentle cooing of a dove. That lowering black future hangs there all the same. The end of the war brings no hope of peace or of security to us. Ellen said I had a little piece of bread and a little molasses in store for my dinner today. March 6th. Today came a godsend. Even a small piece of bread and the molasses had become things of the past. My larder was empty when a tall mulatto woman brought a tray covered by a huge white serviette. Ellen ushered her in with a flourish, saying, Mrs. McDaniel's maid. The maid set down the tray upon my bare table and uncovered it with conscious pride. There were fowls ready for roasting, sausages, butter, bread, eggs, and preserves. I was dumb with delight. After silent thanks to heaven, my powers of speech returned, and I exhausted myself in messages of gratitude to Mrs. McDaniel. "'Mrs., you oughtn't to let her see how glad you was,' said Ellen. "'It was a letting of yourself down.' Mrs. Glover gave me some yarn, and I bought five dozen eggs with it from a wagon. Eggs for Lent. To show that I have faith yet in humanity, I paid in advance in yarn for something to eat, which they promised to bring tomorrow. Had they rated their eggs at one hundred dollars a dozen in Confederate money, I would have paid it as readily as ten dollars. But I haggle in yarn for the millionth part of a thread. Two weeks have passed, and the rumors from Columbia are still of the vaguest. No letter has come from there, no direct message or messenger. "'My God!' cried Dr. Frank Miles. "'But it is strange. Can it be anything so dreadful they dare not tell us?' Dr. San Julian Ravenel has grown pale and haggard with care. His wife and children were left there. Dr. Brumby has at last been coaxed into selling me enough leather for the making of a pair of shoes, else I should have had to give up walking. He knew my father well. He intimated that in some way my father helped him through college. His own money had not sufficed, and so William C. Preston and my father advanced funds sufficient to let him be graduated. Then my uncle, Charles Miller, married his aunt. I listened in rapture, for all this tended to leniency in the leather business, and I bore off the leather gladly. When asked for Confederate money in trade, I never stopped a bargain. I give them twenty dollars or fifty dollars cheerfully for anything, either sum. March 8th. Colonel Childs came with a letter from my husband and a newspaper containing a full account of Sherman's cold-blooded brutality in Columbia. Then we walked three miles to return the call of my benefactress, Mrs. McDaniel. They were kind and hospitable at her house, but my heart was like lead. My head ached, and my legs were worse than my head, and then I had a nervous chill. So I came home, went to bed, and stayed there, until the fence brought me a letter saying my husband would be here today. Then I got up and made ready to give him a cheerful reception. Soon a man called, Troy by name, the same who kept the little corner shop so near my house in Columbia, and of whom we bought things so often. We had fraternized. He now shook hands with me and looked in my face pitifully. We seemed to have been friends all our lives. 
He says they stopped the fire at the Methodist College, perhaps to save old Mr. MacArthur's house. Mr. Sheriff Dent, being burned out, took refuge in our house. He contrived to find favor in Yankee eyes. Troy relates that a Yankee officer snatched a watch from Mrs. McCord's bosom. The soldiers tore the bundles of clothes that the poor wretches tried to save from their burning homes and dashed them back into the flames. They meant to make a clean sweep. They were howling round the fires like demons, these Yankees, in their joy and triumph at our destruction. Well, we have given them a big scare and kept them miserable for four years, the little handful of us. A woman we met on the street stopped to tell us a painful coincidence. A general was married, but he could not stay at home very long after the wedding. When his baby was born, they telegraphed him, and he sent back a rejoicing answer with an inquiry, Is it a boy or a girl? He was killed before he got the reply. Was it not sad? His poor young wife says, He did not live to hear that his son lived. The kind woman added sorrowfully, Died and did not know the sect of his child. Let us hope it will be a Methodist, said Isabella, the irrepressible. At the venison feast, Isabella heard a good word for me, and one for General Chestnut's air of distinction, a thing people cannot give themselves, try as ever they may. Lord Byron says, Everybody knows a gentleman when he sees one, and nobody can tell what it is that makes a gentleman. He knows the thing, but he can't describe it. Now, there are some French words that cannot be translated, and we all know the thing they mean, gracieuse and svelte, for instance, as applied to a woman. Not that anything was said of me like that. Far from it. I am fair, fat, forty, and jolly, and in my unbroken jollity, as far as they know, they found my charm. You see, she doesn't howl, she doesn't cry, she never, never tells anybody about what she was used to at home and what she has lost. High praise, and I intend to try and deserve it ever after. March 10th. Went to church crying to Ellen. It is Lent, we must fast and pray. When I came home, my good fairy, Colonel Childs, had been here bringing rice and potatoes and promising flour. He is a trump. He pulled out his pocketbook and offered to be my banker. He stood there on the street, Miss Middleton and Isabella witnessing the generous action, and straight out offered me money. No, put up that, said I. I am not a beggar, and I never will be. To die is so much easier. Alas, after that flourish of trumpets, when he came with a sack of flour, I accepted it gratefully. I receive things I cannot pay for, but money is different. There I draw a line, imaginary, perhaps. Once before, the same thing happened. Our letters of credit came slowly in 1845, when we went unexpectedly to Europe, and our letters were to follow us. I was a poor little inoffensive bride, and a British officer, who guessed our embarrassment, for we did not tell him, he came over with us on the ship, asked my husband to draw on his banker until the letters of credit should arrive. It was a nice thing for a stranger to do. We have never lost what we never had. We have never had any money, only unlimited credit, for my husband's richest kind of a father insured us all manner of credit. It was all a mirage only at last, and it has gone, just as we drew nigh to it. Colonel Child says eight of our senators are for Reconstruction, and that a ray of light has penetrated inward from Lincoln, who told Judge Campbell that Southern land would not be confiscated. March 12th. Better today. 
A long, long, weary day in grief has passed away. I suppose General Chestnut is somewhere. But where? That is the question. Only once has he visited this sad spot, which holds, he says, all that he cares for on earth. Unless he comes or writes soon, I will cease, or try to cease, this wearisome looking, looking, looking for him. March 13th. My husband at last did come for a visit of two hours. Brought Lawrence, who had been to Camden, and was there, indeed, during the raid. My husband has been ordered to Chester, South Carolina. We are surprised to see by the papers that we behaved heroically in leaving everything we had to be destroyed without one thought of surrender. We had not thought of ourselves from the heroic point of view. Isaac McLaughlin hid and saved everything we trusted him with. A grateful negro is Isaac. March 15th. Lawrence says Miss Chestnut is very proud of the presence of mind and cool self-possession she showed in the face of the enemy. She lost, after all, only two bottles of champagne, two of her brother's gold-headed canes, and her brother's horses, including Claudia, the broodmare, that he valued beyond price, and her own carriage, and a flybrush boy called Battis, whose occupation in life was to stand behind the table with his peacock feathers and brush the flies away. He was the sole member of his dusky race at Mulberry who deserted all Master to follow the Yankees. Now for our losses at the Hermitage. Added to the gold-headed canes and Claudia, we lost every mule and horse, and President Davis's beautiful Arabian was captured. John's were there, too. My light dragoon, Johnny, and heavy swell, is stripped light enough for the fight now. Jonathan, whom we trusted, betrayed us, and the plantation and mills, Mulberry House, etc., were saved by Claiborne, that black rascal who was suspected by all the world. Claiborne boldly affirmed that Mr. Chestnut would not be hurt by destroying his place. The invaders would hurt only the Negroes. "'Mars Jeems,' said he, "'hardly ever come here, and he takes only a little something nut to eat when he do come.' Fever continuing, I sent for San Julian Ravenel. We had a wrangle over the slavery question. Then he fell foul of everybody who had not conducted this war according to his ideas." Ellen had something nice to offer him, thanks to the ever-bountiful child. But he was too angry, too anxious, too miserable to eat. He pitched into Ellen after he had disposed of me. Ellen stood glaring at him from the fireplace, her blue eye nearly white, her other eye blazing as a comet. Last Sunday he gave her some Dover's powders for me. Directions were written on the paper in which the medicine was wrapped, and he told her to show these to me, then to put what I should give her into a wine-glass and let me drink it. Ellen put it all into the wine-glass and let me drink it at one dose. It was enough to last you your lifetime, he said. It was murder. Turning to Ellen. What did you do with the directions? I never see no directions. You never give me none. I told you to show that paper to your mistress. Well, I flung that old brown paper in the fire. "'What you making all this fuss for? "'Soon as I give Mrs. de physic, "'she stopped frettin' and flingin' bout. "'She go to sleep, sweet as a sucklin' baby, "'and she slept two days and nights, "'and now she heap better.' "'And Ellen withdrew from the controversy. "'Well, all is well that ends well, Mrs. Chestnut. "'You took opium enough to kill several persons. "'You were worried out and needed rest. "'You came near getting it thoroughly.' 
You were in no danger from your disease, but your doctor and your nurse combined were deadly. Maybe I was saved by the adulteration, the feebleness of Confederate medicine. A letter from my husband, written at Chester Courthouse on March 15th, says, In the morning I send Lieutenant Ogden with Lawrence to Lincolnton to bring you down. I have three vacant rooms, one with bedsteads, chairs, washstands, basins, and pitchers, the two others bare. You can have half of a kitchen for your cooking. I have also at Dr. De Vega's a room, furnished, to which you are invited, board also. You can take your choice. If you can get your friends in Lincolnton to assume charge of your valuables, only bring such as you may need here. Perhaps it will be better to bring bed and bedding and the other indispensables. End of chapter 19